Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. I'm Zach Rissler, joined by Mike Pratz today, and we're going to be going over an article called The Ultrasound Assessment of the Change in Carotid Corrected Flow Time in Fluid Responsiveness in Undifferentiated Shock. So this study was out of the Critical Care Medicine Journal, uh, November 2018. So this article was about fluid responsiveness. If you read anything about critical care medicine and emergency medicine, you're going to find something about fluid responsiveness and how can we figure out which patients would benefit from fluids or which patients would benefit from things like pressors or something other than just flooding the patients. We're really out there to find the perfect non-invasive test. And we all know that IVC ultrasound has a lot of problems. It's not as accurate in spontaneously breathing patients, um, and it can have limited utility in patients with right-sided pressures. So then people have tried is the left ventricular outflow track, looking at the VTI measurements. Now this has some problems as well. It takes more skill. It has some questionable reproducibility. So a few years ago, uh, some authors looked at carotid flow time, which was supposed to fix all of these problems. And there were some initial studies that showed, well, this sounds like a great idea. It's very promising. And then there were a few studies later that said, never mind, doesn't really work. However, all of these studies were done on patients that were not the patients that were treating in the emergency department. So they're not patients that are actually in shock. This study takes another stab at carotid flow times looking at patients that are in shock. And they use the passive leg raise to compare patients before and after. So the question that they're asking is, does the change in carotid corrected flow time induced by a passive leg raise maneuver predict fluid responsiveness in undifferentiated shock? So they took patients at a single academic center in the United States, and these were adult patients who were in undifferentiated shock for less than 24 hours. So they were admitted to either a medical or a surgical ICU, and these were pretty sick patients. They all needed to be on vasopressors already despite getting at least one liter of fluids. They were excluded if they had a history of left or right heart failure, pulmonary hypertension, non-sinus rhythm, recent abdominal surgeries, or any other reason why it might be bad for you to lift their legs up. They did prospectively enroll these patients for about one year. Now, the big question on any fluid responsiveness study is what is the gold standard? What are they going to compare the point-of-care ultrasound to? In this case, it was the NICOM. This is a non-invasive bioreactance cardiac output monitor. And I can just hear some people sighing sadly or groaning because we know this is not a perfect test in itself. But the way that they performed this study was that they did one of these corrected carotid flow times at the patient's baseline when they're in a semi-recumbent position or semi-fowler's position if you prefer. And then they did a passive leg raise maneuver by placing the patient supine, lifting up their legs and waiting three minutes. And then they repeated the carotid flow time. And they wanted to see if the patients that were fluid responsive based on what happened on the NICOM with this maneuver were also gonna have a big change in their carotid flow time. 
Now, if you are a little bit of a nerd about this, you might know that there's actually a couple different formulas that you can correct the carotid flow time with, either Wody's formula or Bazette's formula. And they actually went with Wody's in this one. And we'll include a link in the show notes for a little more on that if you're interested. The main outcome they were looking at here was can the carotid flow time be used as a predictor of fluid responsiveness. They actually express this as receiver operating characteristics. Now, who did these? Well, not really clear in this article. There was a trained physician sonographer. We don't know if they had a ton of experience with this, if they received any special training or not. For those of you who are unfamiliar how to actually obtain this measurement, it's really not that hard, and that's part of the beauty of it. You take your linear array ultrasound, you get a long axis view of the common carotid vessel, and you put your pulse wave Doppler gate right in the middle there. Now what you're looking for, and this will make more sense if you come to our website and check out the show notes for the picture there, you're gonna measure from the beginning of the upstroke of the trough to the incisoral notch on the pulse waveform. And that gives you the distance of the flow time. Then you have to measure from the start of one cycle to the start of the next cycle to get the heart rate and correct for the heart rate there. And we'll put some videos of how that looks on the show notes too. So Zach, what did they find? Is this going to be the answer to all of our hopes and dreams? I wish, Mike. But unfortunately, while they had some promising results, you know, I think in the end it's not the be-all, end-all. But let's talk about the results. So they assessed about 314 patients, found that 235 were excluded. Their final analysis was of 77 patients. Uh, mean Wait, eight- I feel like there should be a, a record scratch there. <laughs> 235 out of 314 excluded? That's concerning. It is, and it's not really clear why to us they excluded so many patients. We're going to talk about the 77 patients they did include. The mean age of those patients were 60 years old, uh, 51% female, uh, 42% had end-stage renal disease or dialysis, Uh, The mean total fluids administered was 8 liters, so a large amount of fluid. Almost 60% were mechanically ventilated. 71% were on norepi. 14% were on a combination of pressors. And the mean MAP was 60. The mean Apache score for these patients was 24.5, which is about a 50% mortality. So we really are talking about a sick group of patients. All right, Mike, so why don't you tell us about their primary outcomes? All right, so the primary outcome, can the flow time differentiate between responders and non-responders based on the NICOM? The answer, yes, it can. So fluid responsive group had a change in 14.1 milliseconds, and the non-responder groups actually went the opposite way with the passive leg raise, negative 4.0 milliseconds. So that tells us that it looks like these groups are pretty different in their carotid flow times. They did an ROC analysis, and the area under the curve there is 0.878, which is considered pretty good accuracy. And using that, they were able to see that 7 milliseconds seemed to be a good cutoff to define fluid responsiveness. And using that, you had a specificity of 96% and a sensitivity of 68%. Some other findings they saw were that mechanical ventilation, respiratory rate, having higher levels of PEEP actually did not impact the test performance. And as far as feasibility is concerned, they were able to do a passive leg raise on 97.5% of their patients. Although between you and me, they also excluded 235. So I don't know if that percentage is quite as high. So Zach, 
what do you think? What are some other considerations we should have in this study? Yeah, so I think that you hit a big one, that it was a small study. They only included 77 patients, and they excluded a lot of patients, and it wasn't exactly clear why. So this definitely could hurt the study overall. Right, and that and that was buried in a supplemental figure. You know, it wasn't mentioned anywhere in the manuscript, but if you go through all of their extra little diagrams and stuff, you get to one of their original star diagrams, and it just shows 235 excluded, and there's no explanation as to why. Presumably, they just didn't meet the inclusion exclusion criteria, but it would have been helpful to know a little bit more about that population so we can understand who we're missing. Yeah, agreed. They also have a possible funding bias. The study was funded uh, in part by GE, who have some products on the market that use artificial intelligence to come up with some measurements. I know they have VTI measurements on one of their machine, and I'm wondering if they are interested in this study to develop additional uh, artificial intelligence to help clinicians make decisions. Wow, that's juicy. So you're saying there's some possible behind-the-scenes bias here. And I agree with you. It is a little suspicious. GE did fund the study, and they mentioned they use a GE machine. We know GE uh, can do this. And so just something to keep in mind. Maybe, you know, when, when that happens, you have to just take it all with the grain of salt. Yeah. The other thing, as Mike mentioned, kind of at the beginning of the podcast was their standard reference was the NICOM. And in the end, we're not sure if we really know if the NICOM is perfect or we know it's not perfect, but we don't know if it's even giving us the best criterion standard to judge our crowded flow times. Right. Now, another important concept is just thinking about the flow time in general, as opposed to other measurements that have been put out there for fluid responsiveness. The flow time is a it depends on a lot of different parts of the physiology. So it depends on the heart rate, it depends on the inotropy and the afterload. All of those things can affect the flow time. And when we're talking about fluid responsiveness, we're really trying to focus only on the preload. So you have to take in all of those things when you're actually interpreting this data. And that's why some people have criticized the corrected flow time saying that it's not actually measuring what you want. Now, in this case, they seem to indicate that it still works pretty well, but just keep that in mind. Like all types of point of care ultrasound, especially with fluid responsiveness, you have to take it in the clinical context of the patient and factor in everything else that's going on, what you suspect the etiology is, how are they looking clinically, and then use it as just another piece of information to help you with your decisions. So let me summarize this study. This was a prospective study of patients in undifferentiated shock in the intensive care unit. They ended up enrolling 77 patients. They were comparing a point of care corrected carotid flow time to a NICOM cardiac output measurement. What they found was that the corrected carotid flow time seemed to be able to differentiate between the fluid responders and the non-responders after a passive leg raise. They also found that the area under the curve was 0.87. We discussed some of the problems with this study, but overall I think this is one of the stronger studies for carotid flow time. 
So the take-home points from this are that in a population of undifferentiated shock patients, corrected carotid flow time can identify fluid responsors with the caveat as defined by a non-invasive cardiac output device with an area under the curve of 0.88. And the other take-home point, like we were saying, the carotid flow time is just one piece of the puzzle. Put it together with everything else that is going on. Consider the contractility of the heart and the afterload. Thanks again to these authors. What a great study. It really adds to our understanding of how this might be used in our patient population. And thank you for listening. Find out more about the podcast at ultrasoundgel.org, our Facebook page, Google+, or talk to us on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Talk to you later. More. Pressure. More. Gel. More. Pressure. More. Gel. More. Ultrasound gel podcast.